Welcome to the first of a series of four podcasts from the Wolf Institute. Following our recent BBC Radio 4 programme, We Do Do God, we thought it would be worth taking a deeper view of some of the issues surrounding strictly observant religion, or as some might say fundamentalism, in the UK. Programme 1 of Courts and Creeds Presented by Ed Kessler, Founder-Director of the Wolf Institute. Multi-faith Britain has brought religious courts that exist in parallel with civil and criminal law courts, the Beth Din and the Sharia Council. Is this a problem? It's worth reminding ourselves of the deep history of this sort of system. Here's Dr Patrick Nash from the Wolf Institute to tell us more. In England and throughout the the Christian world, there's been a, a very long relationship between secular courts and religious courts, and there's often been a lot of tension there. Uh, You get throughout English legal history a lot of competition for jurisdiction and cases and things like that, and it's really only in the last, since the 19th century or so, that the secular courts have almost completely dominated. The oldest ecclesiastical courts relate to the established church and rarely see controversy these days. Mark Hill, QC, is a specialist in this area. There are a couple of ecclesiastical courts in the Church of England. There are consistory courts, of which every diocese has one, and then of rather more recent origin, there's a clergy discipline, a tribunal. The predominant function of the consistory court today uh, is to deal with property matters, uh, the granting or refusal of faculties, uh, dealing with the changes that are made to church buildings. One needs to be aware of the conceptual difference between ecclesiastical courts of the Church of England on the one hand uh, and the uh, tribunals of other faith communities uh, on the other. Uh, the courts and tribunals of the Church of England are established under primary legislation, so they are part of the nature of uh, establishment. Uh, The judges are appointed uh, in consultation with the Lord Chancellor. Uh, They hold office uh, as such. Uh, And the courts have power to summon witnesses. And indeed, a contempt of a church court can be punished by the High Court, uh, ultimately with a sentence of uh, imprisonment. Now, the tribunals of uh, other faith communities are very different from that. They have no statutory footing. There is no legislative underpinning. They function exclusively based upon the uh, consensual uh, compact which exists between members of that uh, church uh, community. And what of the non-Christian courts? We went to North London to find out. We're here this morning in the courtroom of the London Beth Din. Um, the other name of the Beth Din is the Court of the Chief Rabbi. Uh, it's quite an old court as far as uh, Anglo Jewry is concerned. It was founded in 1805. I asked Rabbi Binstock of the London Beth Din about the sort of work they do. As the Court of the Chief Rabbi, we, we 
exercise our role in a number of areas. There is um, uh, family law that we are involved with. It could be divorce, conversion, Jewish status. Jewish status. Um, there is uh, the judicial side. Uh, more, most specifically, a bit din means a court of uh, a house of uh, judgment, and uh, historically, a bit din would deal in applying Jewish law in disputes. And we're also a sort of regulator for the J Jewish community. So there are many things that we would do to ensure that the standards the community needs to have are going to be maintained. And so we will authorize weddings for them to be allowed to take place. We'll authorize rabbis to check that they are eligible to conduct weddings. Um, we will uh, authorize those who are eligible to certify to be a mohel, someone will perform a circumcision. A sale of a synagogue, which has technicalities involved to it, will supervise the eruv, will supervise mikvaot, uh, places where Jewish a ritual bath, and so on. So there's a wide range of, of regulatory functions which we exercise as well. Um, the chief rabbi's office will be consulted on matters of legislation, could be organ donation, uh, issues of, uh, say, a genetic uh, modification, things that they will like to have a, an opinion on Jewish law, and these issues we, 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 we will give input into as well. The judges, Dianim, have to be male. We have to have transparency. It's a private court, but not a secret court. I remember some years ago, in the tenure of, of Diane Ehrentro, who was then the head of the Beth Din, we welcomed two Jewish judges, to uh, uh, women judges, to observe our proceedings and to make ourselves a bit perhaps more uh, women-sensitive, women-friendly, because in the, the, it's a requirement that the, the, the Dianim, the judges, have to be men. But nevertheless, we want to ensure that what we're doing, if it's administration of divorce, etc., we can be as sensitive to as, as, as far as possible to women's needs. And so we will have uh, women volunteers who are present whenever a woman comes up to receive her divorce that she can feel that she's being supported in, in that process. And so you know, we'll welcome guidance and uh, observations to make ourselves as user-friendly as possible. I've just parked my car at the Birmingham Central Mosque car park and uh, walking towards the Sharia Council. And it's just by the entrance for women to the mosque. And what's interesting is the chair of the panel of the Sharia Council is herself a woman, Dr. Amra Bone. Well, let's go in and meet her. Uh, I, I, although I was the first uh, um, person to sit in one of those panels, but there are other women now that are on other panels in the country. So um, when I first uh, came onto this panel, then it was um, unusual, um, but it, it's becoming uh, more common now. Like the Beth Din, the Sharia Council meets in a room lined with books. The Council spends much of its time taking into account complex Islamic religious laws around divorce, including menstrual cycles, and also offers marriage mediation. Concerns raised by the 2016 Casey Review into social integration in the UK highlighted problems particularly faced by Muslim women following the breakdown of marriage. These may have been registered religiously, technically called nika, but the marriages were unregistered in the civil court. After a chips and chapati lunch, Amra explained how her council tackles this head on. Well, these 
councils were set up to actually help women to begin with and uh, women often have to fight against their families in order to come here to dissolve uh, their marriages. So if, if the Sharia councils didn't exist, they would have no recourse to, to anywhere. They cannot go to civil courts because nikah is unrecognised. So if they wanted to dissolve it, simply they'll be they'll be left in miserable marriages in fact abused even more so so when they come here it provides them a voice it provides them a way um, out they can speak out um, and and have the marriage results because we're not here to uh, a woman has just as much right she consents when she gets married when she gets married because without her consent there is no marriage and at some point in her marriage, for whatever reason she chooses to withdraw her consent, we're not here to force people, we're here to just see whether they, this marriage is workable or not. And if it isn't, and if the two parties aren't on board to carry on with that marriage, that then then the, the marriage is dissolved. But they have every opportunity to get married again. They can marry within a week or two weeks and so on. So the opportunities haven't been taken away from them. The fact that they, they can then go back on equal footing and say a new marriage, new nikah contract where she can put down her new conditions. I think the, the Shia Council empowers women and the way it empowers women is that um, culturally a lot of men believe that they are the only one who can give talaq or give divorce to a woman. And if they don't agree with it, there won't be a divorce. But to their surprise, when they come over here, they find out that um, we don't need their permission. And, and so that somehow um, makes them feel a, a little insecure. But we say that, that there, there is a way that when he can divorce, um, he can initiate the divorce and that um, it, it is in his hands in that sense when, it, when it, uh, uh, he initiates talaq. And even in Khula, they both can come to some sort of terms. Well, when the case comes to the council, we do not need his permission. More scepticism on this matter from Patrick Nash. Yeah, well, they're serving a, a, a definite need and purpose. Looking at it from the outside, it look as a you know secular citizen, it looks problematic in terms of you know what they're receiving, the kind of judgments that come out in the press and things like that. They're serving a, a need which English law has just isn't at the moment capable of meeting. Under British civil law, a third party can be used to resolve a dispute as long as both sides agree to the arbitration. They cannot, however, replace civil law. The overriding principle is that these rules, practices and bodies must operate within the laws of the UK. Public opinion tends to feel uneasy about these parallel courts, as the former Archbishop of Canterbury found out some years ago. Mark Hill again. I well recall the lecture which um, was given by uh, Rowan Williams, which caused a, a significant media flurry. Uh, in truth, uh, what Rowan Williams was proposing was an extremely modest uh, and anodyne recognition of what has always been the case, namely that uh, within the overriding supremacy of English law, uh, faith communities are permitted to have their own internal means of resolving uh, disputes. Uh, I think 
that he was either misreported or what he said was uh, uh, exaggerated in some way. Because if one reads carefully the text of that lecture, it's as valid now as it was then in recognising a long-established reality that private associations, unincorporated associations, whether they are religious in nature or secular in nature, have the right, uh, under the law of England, to establish their own means of reconciling disputes. Again, Patrick is more sceptical. I, th- I think there's a widespread suspicion of them, uh, what, what they're doing, how many there are, we don't know. The Archbishop of Canterbury's speech more than 10 years ago now drew enormous flack uh, for going there and discussing it. There's a lot of suspicion, which is in, to some degree well-founded. Um, I mean, it's quite well known that the treatment of women, say, isn't, it wouldn't be acceptable if, it, if that was taking place in an English secular court but also a lot of misunderstanding as to what the problems really are. A notorious example of religion and civil society coming into conflict was the Luftar Rachman case in 2014, in which the Tower Hamlet's mayoral election result was overturned. Rachman being accused of bringing undue spiritual influence to bear in his campaign. I can't speak of the specific Tower Hamlet's uh, example. Uh, But it's a well-known phenomenon that faith leaders, the very charism of leadership, uh, is often such that uh, a disproportionate influence can be given by those leaders uh, over their uh, followers. Um, And criticism can be made uh, that people use the power of personality uh, and other coercive means uh, to uh, get individuals to uh, follow them. And I think an example in local politics, whether it's in Tower Hamlets or in some examples in inner city Birmingham, uh, are that religious leaders can be strongly influential in a small community uh, in encouraging their membership uh, to vote in a particular way. And uh, often the promise of a leader to a politician to deliver a significant uh, number of votes may be enough to swing an election. Imam Musharraf Hussein is the mildest, mannered, bringer-together of communities. But judge for yourself if even he is not tempted to influence voting patterns in his community. I will not be openly saying vote Labour because I'm a Labour member uh, or don't vote uh, Conservative or Liberals. I wouldn't say that. That would be totally wrong. Uh, but uh, I, I will certainly, I think that's very natural, normal, uh, that uh, I would be persuading them to uh, vote the people who, you know, I think from my point of view, uh, would be good for the Muslim community. Perhaps like the Archbishop of Canterbury criticising bankers and hedge fund managers. Patrick Nash's ambition is to reform patiently our complex and creaking marriage laws and hence to resolve discrepancies between faith groups concerning, for example, rights and polygamy. Under English law, there's a crime of bigamy. You can't marry more than one person. But there are numerous concerns about de facto polygamy in Islamic communities. And there's all kinds of problems with that that come out in the research and literature. How, How do you prevent and catch and deal with stuff like that? 
to bring that in line with, well, English civil law. That's something that will have to be looked at in any marriage law reform, is, you know, what do we want to achieve? A, is polygamy a problem? I, I would suggest it is. And how do you how do you deal with that by changing the law? Patrick is also concerned about first and second cousin marriage, prevalent in Muslim and ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities. It's a matter of law, and a matter of biology too. In English law, there's a, there's a set called the prohibited degrees of relationship. So it's, it's the stuff you would expect, like uh, sisters, uncles, you know, mothers, things like the grandparents, stuff like that, half half siblings, I believe, as well. But one aspect that's missing from that is, you know, f- first cousin marriages. And the, I mean, the problems for this are well known. There's there's the whole, you know, genetic health, public health component, that you know, inherited diseases that end up being a massive problem from these kinds of relationships. And also there's social effects to this as well. There are clearly problems to be overcome, but Patrick Nash is hopeful. The whole project's about how do you make just common sense, humane changes to uh, these various branches of law to make life easier for Muslims in Britain and also to, to you know, deal with the real problems and legitimate concerns that there are um, with, you know, not just integration, but fear and misunderstanding and everything like that. So the, the vision, I suppose, is that you, you make these small, dull, unnoticeable changes to, again, unglamorous areas of law, but in the longer term that makes a real difference. When the church had considerable and cohesive power, clashes arose between ecclesiastical courts and civil courts, between church and state, if you will. With the rise of secularism and, recently, the decline in mainstream Christian worship, such conflicts are difficult to imagine. But, in a multicultural UK, religious practice is becoming more fragmented, religious fervour is increasing in intensity, and those who display it are becoming more numerous. Pentecostal churches, mosques and ultra-Orthodox synagogues are doing great business, and the attendant Beth Din and Sharia courts of the Muslim and Jewish traditions are becoming more high profile. This has led some to fear a renewal of the culture wars of the early modern era. But both of the legal experts we talked to for this podcast, Patrick Nash and Mark Hill, felt the danger of such conflict had been exaggerated. And among the Jewish and Muslim judges we spoke to, we found absolutely no appetite to challenge or usurp the laws of the land. That was Ed Kessler, founder director of the Wolf Institute. Next in this short series of podcasts about strictly observant religion, golden age thinking. <laughs>